0: my engagement blew up and I was like okay my my best friend and you know my partner is gone you know I'm isolated in another country during COVID <laughs> I just lost this company too it was horrible right because typically what people say is like you're supposed to have four things in life right at least three of them should be stable right your career or work your family your friends and your partner and I had basically none of them <laughs> right because I didn't have access to my family it's not like my family was bad or anything but I didn't have access to my family so I had none of them going for me
1: it starts with just taking that leap man you have to work
0: hard you have to be incredibly smart choose
1: something that even if it fails fails, you are going to be proud of it doesn't matter how badly you got beaten be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go with your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. <laughs> Marina had hit bottom. At the start of a global pandemic, she found herself with a broken heart in another country isolated from the people she loved most. She had no stability, but it was at this moment she could define her character. The choices we make when we feel the world is against us, those choices define us. In this episode, we'll explore how Marina turned her life around and stands today as the founder and CEO of Equo, a company that offers 100% plastic-free straws, utensils, dishwash, and drinkware. Her success story was a long time coming with many trials and tribulations, and it all started in the Canadian Vietnamese home office of two entrepreneurial refugees looking to make ends meet.
0: My full name is Marina Tran Vu. Uh, I'm originally from Canada, but I moved over to Vietnam about four years ago. Um, And right now I run a startup called Equo. And what we do is we provide alternatives to single-use plastic and paper made out of natural materials like coconut, grass, rice, sugarcane, so we do like we sell straws and utensils and things like that, but made out of materials. Right.
1: Like that. And where in Vietnam are we? We're in Vietnam, by the way, everyone. Oh, We're yeah. in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> like where can you can you describe about like where we are in Vietnam and then also just like where we are right now?
0: Yeah. So we are in Ho Chi Minh City. So that's actually to the south um of Vietnam. It's uh nice and hot year round. Right now it's actually rainy season. So sometimes we'll get like flash rainstorms that you know, last for five to 10 the minutes,
1: craziest thunder <laughs> I have ever heard of. I thought it was an
0: earthquake. It's loud here. It was crazy. Yeah. And it'll oh go on goodness. for like the whole night. You would think like something's coming in. Um, I don't know, aliens are landing or something, but everything will be fully foggy and then it'll clear up and it's beautiful and it'll all dry up because it's so hot and humid here. It'll dry up in like 20 minutes. So um, that's where we are. We're in Ho Chi Minh City. And where we are right now specifically is we are at uh, my office, the equal office uh, in District 1. So District 1 is kind of like the main hub economic area of like Ho Chi Minh. It's also where like a lot of tourists stay. That's like the busy part. Um but yeah we're we're right there in the center of the city.
1: I kind of want to go back to what your parents have told you their story is about moving from Vietnam to Canada.
0: Yeah, I guess for my parents it was similar to a lot of um you know Vietnamese immigrants. They had fled Vietnam during the Vietnam War and this was around 1970s. And my mom, uh, she was in high school at that time when the Vietnam War happened. My dad, he was a little bit older because he's like five years older than my mom. (laughs) But my mom, I do remember her telling me how, you know, she used to go to school. She was very curious when she was young. She used to climb up trees and like pick little hot peppers to like eat the hot peppers because she loves chili peppers. And then there was one day when the Vietnam War broke out and all that freedom that she had, like it disappeared overnight. So. Um, She was no longer allowed to go to school. There was a lot of things that happened. You know, people were like leaving. They were trying to escape the areas where war is breaking out.
1: Like did your mom like see any of that war? Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. Both my mom and my dad, uh, they distinctively remember seeing a lot of things happening. My dad specifically, he was in um, kind of the Southern part of Vietnam a city called Gokong. And uh, basically he told me one of the most, Kind of brutal memories that he had was when he was out kind of in the field, and he had dogs as well. He had like four or five dogs. and all of a sudden he saw his dogs being shot one by one. Yeah, after that, it was just a matter of everyone just trying to to survive and and live and survive past whatever whatever was breaking out.
1: How did they get out?
0: My mom ended up um, somehow getting on a boat to go to Thailand. And so she went to Thailand, and that's where she stayed for about a year or so. Before she got sponsored by the Canadian government as a refugee to come to Canada, she started living with like you know a doctor's family, and they sponsored her. They taught her English, so that's how she kind of um, got out of Vietnam. Um, my dad was kind of similar, but unfortunately, because I think he was a male, um, he was you know in the hometown he got captured. He got put into a jail, I believe it was somewhere in the south. Then he got transferred over to a jail in Indonesia. And Cambodia as well um, and it was a jail slash refugee camp you know so he was there for quite a few years at least three or four years before he um, also got sponsored to come over to Canada as well
1: what are your, some of your first memories in Canada
0: I was born in in Calgary and <laughs> uh, not not too many Vietnamese people are, I guess are born in Calgary but um, my parents landed there because they wanted to go uh, study um, at the University of Calgary The earliest memory in this, I don't know how I remember this, but I remember us driving over from Calgary to Vancouver because my parents, after they finished graduating from uh, the University of Calgary, um, they said Calgary is way too cold. (laughs) They're like, it's freezing. And so we, they drove us over to Vancouver. I remember the drive because I just remember the frost on the windows. It was all white and it was so, so, so cold. And we were in the back, my sister and I, covered in like four or five blankets because it was so cold. Like the, heat, the heater of the car just did not, like it was not enough, you know? Um, and then, yeah, we got to Vancouver and kind of my earliest memories is really just playing the back of my mom's store slash where we lived um, on a mattress. What was the store? She opened an accounting business just to file taxes. And my dad, what he had done is he had built the program, the software for it. So you can automate it. Yeah. Because back then you had to do everything by hand, like literally four or five, 10 forms you write in each box by hand. You know, they had the little, little boxes, even for each single digit. Um, And what my dad did was he built a program for that. And he tried to automate that process so that you could actually just print it out on those hand printers where you right. feed the papers. So that way it'd be a lot faster. That's really smart. Yeah, yeah. It was really smart at the time, right? I, I got a whole story about how, you know, H&R Block came to him and tried to buy the program. No <laughs> yeah, It's Yeah, it, it was really cool. But yeah, that's the, what they were trying to, like, you know, make work at the time um, in order to make money.
1: Was it going well initially? Like, like No, not
0: at all. <laughs> really? What? Yeah, because when my parents obviously came to Canada and they were sponsored, we still didn't have a lot of money. They grew up with no money. My parents, you know, my mom was working at a bakery part-time. My dad was working at a parts factory at, at the time as well, just trying to make ends meet while they were going to school. And we were so poor that we had to move into the basement of uh, my uncle's house at the time. But one thing, I don't know what happened, but we had to move out of that basement very quickly. And instead we moved into a store. So in the front of the store was my mom's office, like one desk. And she had like two chairs for like, you know, customers to sit down. And in the back of the office was a mini fridge and a mattress where we slept. (laughs) Yeah, until we found an apartment that was, um, you know, affordable and then uh, every now and then we would visit our two neighbors. And the two that I remember, or three that I remember distinctly, was one Vietnamese sandwich shop. They were also trying to just make ends meet too. So they were doing Vietnamese sandwiches. So we'd get a lot of Vietnamese food from there. Uh, one was a butcher shop. So I distinctly remember the smell of like, you know, raw meat being cut up and pigs hanging in the windows. Um, and then next to that was a laundromat where we would do our laundry. But also on top of that, my sister and I would spend hours and hours just trying to play Street Fighter on the arcade <laughs> games because that's what we do to entertain ourselves.
1: It's interesting that it's like like you're you're kind of like surrounded by this like entrepreneurial spirit like mm-hmm. almost instantly.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everyone was just trying to make it, you know, in a country where um, literally my parents didn't even know how to speak English too. So uh, my first language growing up, even though I was born in Canada, was Vietnamese. And then when I went to school, I was English second language in, <laughs> in school when I started, which was really odd, right? Both my sister and I. But Yeah, everyone around us. I think they were just trying to survive and make ends meet and trying to make a better life from themselves.
1: Why do you think that was the way to do it? I don't know if it's true for Canada. I assume it's true, but like most like Americans born in America would be like, oh, I'm just going to get like a job, like a stable job, not necessarily create my own business. Like most people don't have their own businesses. So like, why do you think for your parents, it was like to survive. I need to create my own business.
0: Yeah, I think from what I know from my parents, but also from a lot of the other immigrants that, you know, came over to Canada at the time, it's like, you know, they didn't have the same level of degree. Like my dad was going to university in Vietnam, you know, and he was studying also computer engineering um, and business at the time. But him and a lot of other people who maybe doctors or teachers, professors, when they came over to Canada, one, they didn't know the language, so they couldn't really obtain the same sort of level of job. And then two, when you don't know the language and you you can't utilize your degree, you kind of have to see what else you can do, right? And a lot of it, you kind of fall back onto what can you learn very quickly to make money. So I think that was the case for a lot of immigrants. For my parents, um, it was the same. Like their English probably wasn't good enough to be hired by a company at that time. Actually, my dad out of university, um, he got a job offer. And it was like a six figure job offer, which is really? like amazing, right? Yeah, that's
1: huge. That's the like that's the dream for exactly. a lot of people. Exactly,
0: exactly. It's huge, but it was to come back to Vietnam because he spoke Vietnamese and he could kind of do like a little be a liaison. And I think at the time his thought was like, you know, I, I'm here in Canada. I met this woman that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. I'm having kids. Like, I don't want to go back to Vietnam. I want to try to give them a life here. So it's not that those opportunities weren't presented. It's just that it wasn't presented where they could. Potentially have that career, you know, in Canada.
1: So for you, like seeing this, like you know, like le- learning learning English in school, and then also seeing your parents build this business. Like, when did you start getting more involved? Because I imagine you would would help help out a bit.
0: I did, yeah. So my my sister and I, like from a very young age, we saw my parents like working a lot, right? And the office was always our home because it was never our separation. Even when we moved to like the larger apartment. We divided it into one room where my, uh, my mom, my sister, my dad, and I would sleep. We all slept in one room. <laughs> and the other small room would be our makeshift uh, living room where it was like literally like a, a mattress and like a TV. <laughs> and then on the outside of it would be the office. So we had uh, the kitchen and we had the bathroom and we would actually close it off with this like kind of like plastic magnetic curtain thing. So you close it and you seal it. And then that way people know like, hey, this is not part of the office so we would seal off the the kitchen and we sealed off the living space. And then the office was basically what was supposed to be our living room. And we would have people really? come there every single day. Yep. Who was coming? My mom's customers who were filing taxes and like where she would do the accounting work for them.
1: And so what were you helping with? And when did that, uh, that like the automated system get integrated into this whole thing too?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So my dad, when he did the program, he had programmed something called uh, like the programming language was basic. Um, this is before C++ and you know all the yeah, other yeah. This is like one of the stuff. first programming languages. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So my dad had programmed it all, and then we had to buy like printers. And when my sister and I were younger, what we did was because we want to hang out with my parents. Like what we would do is we would help stamp things, and then we would photocopy things because everyone wants a copy of their um, tax return. So we'd photocopy that, and then when we were um, old enough, we would also um, feed the paper into the machine. We just did what we could as as young kids. So that started really, really early, like when we were five.
1: Wow. Okay. So like as you get into like maybe in high school, do you are you still helping with the family business? Are you doing anything like any entrepreneurial endeavors on on the side on your own?
0: Yeah. um, Well, we actually helped all the way until high school. I think it died down a little bit in high school, primarily because we were going to school in a different part of the city. Uh, My parents, when they had enough money, they moved us over to a different uh, district. And it was on the the opposite side so we could go to a better school. At the time, we were supposed to go to one of the worst schools in Vancouver. So we, we helped a little bit less because of the proximity. But whenever I got really busy during tax season, which is usually from like January to April slash May, then my sister and I, right after school, we would try to go back to the office and try to help out wherever we could.
1: And when did he get an offer from h Block?
0: <laughs> oh, that was actually like quite early on. So they had seen that we were churning out tax returns in like a matter of minutes, like five minutes, 10 minutes, because like the automated printing process just helped that, Right. Previously, like you, you sit there and you write it by hand, you do the calculations by hand too. It takes an hour, three hours. And my parents were also charging very s- small amounts, like five to $10 per tax return. Whereas H&R Block at the time was charging 30 to 50 to $100, depending on how long it takes, you know, so. My parents, they actually built up a huge customer base of like immigrants because most of them couldn't afford, you know, the services of H&R Block. So early on, like, I believe it was like five or six years into business. Then H&R Block came to my dad and was like, hey, like, we'd like to buy your program.
1: How do they find out about it?
0: Primarily because a lot of um, the H&R Block stores around them, they were getting filled up because they were so busy, right? People were lining up for hours just to get their tax returns. And people were like, you know what? This is taking too long. And they started hearing about my mom's business. And my mom's business was entirely word of mouth because, you know, they didn't have, they weren't even listed in the phone book at the time. That's what we used (laughs) to find businesses. But people started kind of saying, oh yeah, like, you know, there's this business that's doing it quickly, five, 10 minutes, amazing tax returns. And so they started hearing it by word of mouth. And so they found my dad and was like, hey, we'd like to really buy this software from you. You know, we'll give you like X, dollars and he told me it was like a couple hundred thousand which was a huge amount of money for us at that time right and my dad's like "Mm, you know I I built this and it's been five years like no I'm not gonna sell it to you guys so instead he just kind of turned them down and then it was like I think five or six years later they started coming out with like turbo tax and all these other tax things but that was like long after
1: does he regret not selling to them
0: I asked him this all the time. I was like, man, like, don't you regret not selling or not taking that $200,000 a year job back in Vietnam? Like, don't you regret any of that? And he's like, no, because like, we were able to build this business. We had the freedom to do it ourselves. And yes, it was really hard, like for years, right? Like we had very little to eat. We lived in not the nicest place. It was like cockroaches and, you know, rats and everything all the time. But, you know, if he hadn't gone through that and they hadn't worked so hard, then they wouldn't be able to have the enjoyment they have right now, all right. Like my mom loves to do what she does. My dad's, you know, enjoying the freedom of like, no, not having to work for another company. Yeah. You know, they're seeing myself, uh, myself and my sister and like them instilling the values of hard work in us. Yeah, well, I mean, they know? gave
1: you the entrepreneurial blueprint, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like if anything, seeing what my, my parents built and like that entire journey for me was like really like, okay, I can't ever feel lazy. You know, I, I can't ever not try to work, you know? Um, so that's why I think I always work so hard. My sister too, she's worked so hard as well.
1: Yeah. So in high school, because you were not helping out as much with the family business, what did you begin to explore in high school? Like how did your interest develop?
0: Yeah, I think that was like a crossroads from myself, but I would say a lot of it, I took after my sister, you know, my sister, um, kind of seeing everything, and also like, you know, working part time at my parents office, she was still really involved in school. She was like, I'm gonna explore everything. So she was on student council, she was captain of every sports team possible, (laughs) you know, and I kind of followed in her lead. I was like, you know, I can't just sit around and do nothing, you know, like, if we're in school, before school, we'll do something after school, we'll do something at lunch, we'll do something. So we were always involved in a lot of activities for myself. And for her, it was the same, we were, play basketball. So we were on the basketball team. We were in, I believe it was called a uniform club. I remember I was in a service club. I was on student council. She was on student council. She became president of the school. I did not. I failed my speech so horribly that there was no way I was going to get elected, but (laughs) she got elected president of the school. You know, so we were busy with so many things because we wanted to explore so many things, too. She started doing, like, you know, community basketball and then coaching kids in basketball. I did horseback riding, uh, taekwondo. I did everything. And like, this
1: wasn't prompted by your parents. This is because, no. like, you wanted to explore.
0: No, they didn't put us in anything. My sister, like, she was in piano. She was in all student council, everything because she wanted to. And we had to keep up our grades, obviously. And then for myself, the same thing. I just wanted to explore everything. We were both in a fashion design course as well, which is an elective in high school. We spent hours just sewing dresses and clothing and stuff like that to be in the fashion show. So we did that for like four years.
1: Sounds like you like really (laughs) did try everything. Was there anything that jumped out to you as you are going towards college? Something that like, oh, maybe this is like the seeds of something that I could explore even more? Quite
0: honestly, I don't think I found out what I wanted to do until after university.
1: Why was it hard? Do you think?
0: I think because, you know, my sister, she was such a huge influence on my life and my parents were too. My parents were in accounting. My sister, she found, I don't know how she did, but she found in high school, her love of finance. Like she was like, I love stocks. I love finance. I want to work in a bank. So she started working in a bank when she was like younger. She's like, I'm gonna do everything to do with like banking and finance. And I was like, I don't understand this love like in (laughs) high school, you know? And so she found that originally I just flip-flopped through so many different ideas. I was like, I want to be a fashion designer. Then I was like, you know, I want to be a lawyer. Then I was like, okay, you know, what? I want to do something to help people. So I got, I did a lot of volunteering. I volunteered with Kids Help Phone and wherever I could. And then honestly, I, what happened was I just ended up going to business school at UBC because my sister was there. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I, I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do, you know? And I I felt so lost for a really long time. Like, yeah, first year I tried, like, accounting because I was like, oh, my mom doesn't maybe I'll like it, and I hated it. Then I was like, okay, you know what? Let me try finance.
1: What was it like figuring that out? Like, did you, like, go into the job or the internship and you like oh this sucks yeah
0: well you know what besides that what i did was i tried to do a lot of like reading and like learning on my own so like you know even when i w- we were younger we studied a lot of stuff on our own like we were doing high school level math when we were like in third grade you know because <laughs> like s- side note and i don't i don't <laughs> high encourage... <laughs> school level
1: math yeah. third grade. <laughs> well i mean i don't
0: i don't encourage this but like my my parents were like because we did not have money what they would Encourage us to do is that we would steal books from the library. We w- we wouldn't steal; we borrowed them. We just never returned them, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the so we least. did that,
0: and we would basically do all the math books during summer. Really, people, people went on summer breaks. We never went on vacation. We just during the summer we were just reading books and we were just doing math. So that's what I defaulted to when I was trying to figure out what I I wanted to do. Is like, okay, let's get some accounting books out. Let's try to do the accounting and do all the the work in there. And I was like, man, this is freaking boring. I hate it. Right, and I tried to do that. Then finance, I was like, okay, let me join the finance club. Let me learn everything I can about investment banking. And I fucking hate it. So, I went through all that with every single field until I kind of landed on marketing. And then, marketing, it wasn't even like I liked it. But at the time, like my marketing professor, she's like, okay, pick a brand and come up with their next new product. Um, And I remember distinctively, it was a Grey Goose. I was like, okay, Grey Goose Vodka, we'll come up with the next version. It's going to be called Grey Goose Diamond. It's going to be an ultra luxury version of vodka with like a a flavor. And when I designed that, I was like, hey, this is kind of a cool product. I, get, I guarantee people will pay for it, right? And that kind of triggered my interest in like, you know, why don't we create new products? And why don't I learn about the entire process? So from there, I started doing internships. I started being a marketing research assistant to her as well. And going down that path.
1: So I want to explore some of the marketing stuff that you did. Did you immediately want to like launch your own product or was the the goal to like work for another company in marketing? So
0: I wanted to go into marketing research, which I did. I, I became a research assistant, learn everything about marketing research, see if that's a part of marketing that I want to learn. Then I also, um, I did like kind of graphic marketing design. Like I thought that would be something I would be interested. So I did that. I interned for a company in Hong Kong doing that. Then I was like, okay, maybe I want to do a little bit of public relations and a little bit of blogging. So I did that for a company in New York uh, interning. And then I ended up interning for an ad agency in Vancouver and doing events and like PR stuff and just marketing stuff in general and it was after that that i was like okay you know what like this whole ad agency world trying to sell products is really interesting but for me i really want to know like how do you make products how do you make things and how do you bring them to market and how do you get people to pay you for them like, you know so after that like i i basically bugged like the ad agency i was working for at the time i was like i want a job i want a job anywhere anytime and they're like okay we have a potential opening in toronto so i flew over there and i interviewed with this ad agency and I also like at the time I like emailed like 40 different people of whose jobs I wanted. (laughs) Like there are VPs and CMOs and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Can you actually go through that process? I'm curious how you went about finding those companies and how you wrote something that you could get a response.
0: The the trigger point for that for me was because I was in my fourth year at the time, you know, and I had been interviewing for a lot of companies. I remember I got to like a late stage round with Pepsi. They flew us out to Calgary to no do way. interviews. Yeah, it was really cool. I was like, I'm super excited, but I didn't land a job in any of these. I got into like the interview station. I was like, man. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to not have a job out of university because I was like, okay, I hated school. And I went through four years of this crap, you know, like I got to end up with a job or something. So that was kind of my, my motivation. So when the ad agency said there was an opening in Toronto, I said, okay, you know, this is very interesting. If I'm going to fly all the way to Toronto, I might as well do something else with my time. I'm not going to just do that one interview. So instead of spending just one day there for that interview, I said, okay, I'm going to spend a week there. And I was like, if I'm going to spend a week there, I'm just going to email a whole bunch of people on like LinkedIn, right? Like I'm just going to go try to contact on LinkedIn because it was new at the time and see if they would talk to me. At the time, I just basically like realized I had failed so many interviews and like I didn't want to be jobless. I was like, I literally have nothing to lose. I have no shame. So I emailed about 30 to 40 different people and seven of them came back to me.
1: That's a pretty high success. It wasn't so
0: bad. Yeah, it wasn't so bad. And so... I flew out to Toronto a couple of weeks later and I had met with all of these people and I actually just picked their brain. I was like, how'd you get into this job? Because I really want a job here at this company. I want to be a brand manager. I had figured out at, at that point that I wanted to go into brand management because it was really cool. You get to know everything about the PL, you get to know about the product, the pricing, everything. So I was like, I want to do this. How do I get there? I am just right now in an ad agency in the lowest role possible (laughs) as an intern. And I'm interviewing for a media planning assistant role, nothing to do with brand management. So they said, hey, these are all the tips we would give to you. You know what? You made a connection. That's the best thing you could do right now. If something opens up, we'll let you know. And then um, before I always left any of those conversations, I said, hey, would you mind if I kept in touch with you? And also, can you tell me why you agreed to meet with (laughs) me? (laughs) Right? And they said, at the time, it was like, no one has ever reached out to me. And I thought it was very interesting. Like, you know, you took the guts to reach out, to ask some really cool questions and really take the initiative to try to go after what you're looking for. So that's the reason why I decided to meet with you. I was like, okay, cool. And they're like, you know, we met with you. And now, like, you know, I really want to support you in a role. And then it turns out after I took that job in Toronto, I got over to Toronto. But basically from those conversations a year later I got to work at Unilever.
1: And I think that just like goes to show there's I mean and I think it, it was the same in 2009 as it is today. It's like a lot of people are way more accessible than you would think. Like unless they're like super super famous and getting like millions of DMs to like a day, yeah. you probably can at least get them to read, you know, an email that you've written, especially if it's like not asking for much and it's like, like learning about, you know, their, their experience. And I think like that's, that seems like exactly what you did.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, of course, like you shouldn't go after like Kanye West or something yeah. expect him <laughs> to read your like DMs. Right. But like, you know, if you actually genuinely are interested and you try and you talk to a person, you try to reach out, the worst that can happen is like, they say no, or like they don't even respond. So like, what's that going to do? Right. So I think I just took a chance because I was desperate at that time too.
1: So what was your expectation of maybe Unilever? And what was the actual experience working there?
0: Yeah, I think my expectation for Unilever was like, it was such a dream. And then, you know how they tell you, like, you should never meet your like favorite actor because you'll like, yeah. be disappointed or something. Uh, I think that's what I, exactly what happened to me. Um, you know, I was so desperate to like work for this company that I said yes to everything. And then the actual experience itself wasn't great. I remember my first day at Unilever was on Boxing Day. So December 26th. Well, that's a
1: crazy first day.
0: It was a horrible first day. But I like, you know, I had asked them before that and I was like, hey, you know, is it okay if I actually go back home to Vancouver, um, you know, for vacation first and then I can start like in January, right? It's just a couple of days and they're like, oh no, we really need you in this role right now. And I was like, okay, you know what? This is like my dream job, why not, right? I remember I came into the office, it's a huge office, like so many floors. And I remember on the first day I came in, there was no one there except for my boss, my manager, not a single soul.
1: Because everyone was gone. Everyone was on vacation because
0: it's Christmas, you know, it's like they just had Christmas the day before. No one's working and then they're going to go up to New Year's. So there was not a single person there, not even like, you know, anyone like maintaining the facilities, just my manager and I. So it was dead quiet. And it was my first day, and I remember the first thing that happened is like, you know, she was like, "Oh yeah, you know, welcome to Unilever It's like so exciting to have you here." Okay, so what you need to do is kind of like, you know, on your first day, is just read through this. It's just about the brand, about the company and stuff. And it was like a thick, giant book. Like it was like I don't know, two hundred pages or something, right? And it was that um, combined with like some training. So usually what happened is in October, November of every year, they have this training that they all fly everyone to New York for a young uh, managers. Um, and I missed that training because, you know, I got hired in December. So I had to read through that all by myself. So my first Yikes. <laughs> three or four days. Yeah. I was just reading that. Yeah. I was just reading that book literally just couldn't have read it
1: from home or (laughs) gotta be in the office you couldn't send
0: it to me earlier no it was just i had to sit there and read it and like obviously i got familiar with the email systems but i was like man like looking back on that i was like i should have probably seen like a little bit of a red flag with that like why would you make someone start on boxing day and why would the only thing that you have them do is just sit there and read you know, with no one in the office. Right. And then after that, I think I started to get a reality check. Politics were a big part of it. You know, typically the company they recruited from certain universities. So basically everyone was from the same university. You know, they all knew each other in some way or form. And I was kind of like this outlier that didn't really fit in. And um, I didn't come from the same school. I was hired off season as well because usually they recruit at certain times. So I felt left out a lot, you know, all I can say is like, I think it provides a really great foundation and they push you a lot. And that's what I learned amazingly. But like when you don't fit, you really don't fit. And I just don't think I fit. Like, I think I crossed off all the things I should have crossed off. But at the end of the day, I just was not a good fit for the company. And I think it culminated, especially when I passed out of work. (laughs) happened? (laughs) Like, you know, I was on a diet. I was trying to manage my weight because I gained a lot of weight. I was really stressed and then trying to keep up with work, being unhappy at work, you know, not really performing the way I wanted to at work. And then also like literally having no friends at work either. I had like one friend who was on a different floor and he was the one who helped kind of get me the job. But other than that, I had no friends at work. I was like not eating lunch with anyone. I would be like excluded. I wasn't even hanging out with them after work. You know, sometimes I'd be like, oh yeah, we're going for drinks. And then like, I'd be like left out. And I was like, man, this sucks, right? So I was dealing with all that at the same time. Plus moving into a new city by myself, right? No parents. You know, my sister was there, but then she took off right away to like New York. So I didn't have her there. And then, yeah, I think one day I just passed out at work. And then I found out afterwards that I had developed like anemia. I think I always had it, but I had uh, anemia and I produced, you know, less blood cells and red blood cells than the average person. So I'm more prone to fainting and producing less blood. And so I was like, Oh, that sucks. (laughs) You know, (laughs) but right after that too, like it's not that the company didn't care or anything, but right after that, you know, I think I realized I wasn't a fit, you know, and they thought I wasn't a fit either. And then, yeah, I just left the company. You know and at first i was like man i i cried my eyes out for like cuz this is your days. dream job this yeah. is like what it was all leading to and now. it was supposed to be like amazing it was supposed to be the start of my career i cried my eyes out and I called one of the mentors that I became friends with, one of those seven people I reached out to. And he was at the time the national sales manager for Coca-Cola. And I called him and I was like, oh my God, I just left the company. And like, he's like, well, did they give you some money to like, you know, leave? Right. And I was like, yes, they did. But like, you know, I can't believe I failed. I feel like I failed. And he's like, look, Marina, this is going to happen to you like many more times in your career. Whether you leave the company, they like, you know, they say that you're not a fit for the company. Whatever it is, think about it this way: you just left with like six to eight months worth of salary.
1: <laughs> that's pretty good. Like that's a, that's
0: the that's the biggest gift they could have given yeah. to you. You have them on your resume, it's not a fit, and you found that out earlier rather than stick it out and be miserable. So now suck it up, you know. <laughs> Take your six to eight months salary free that you got and figure out what it is you want to do. This is the biggest blessing you could have in your life. And I thought that was so interesting because no one would usually give you that advice. That's,
1: that's that's tough love advice. It is, Hmm.
0: it is right. No one would ever be like, Oh, you know, don't feel sad. Like you tried your best. No, he was like, suck it up. You know, this is the best gift they could have given to you and find out what you really want to do. And then, about a month later, I um I interviewed for Bacardi and started working there. I ended up being there almost four years. Honestly, I couldn't have thanked him more in that time because no one else was saying the same thing. They were all saying, "Oh, it's okay. You tried your best. Don't worry about it. You know, maybe it wasn't the right time for you." No, he was just like, "Suck it up. Be grateful for that." You know, so I, I great really advice. Just, yeah.
1: <laughs> so I kind of want to go through your like work experience up to maybe around like 2019. I want to get up to to equal.
0: So basically after Ricardi I went over to LG because I realized I was really exhausted from like the beverage alcohol industry. It's a lot of drinking, a lot of drinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then like, I did a stint at another alcohol company for five months after that, and I actually just was like, okay, I'm not quitting you, the company. I'm just quitting the industry. Like I did that. And they were understanding of that. So then I worked at LG for a bit and then I left LG and then went to Spin Master and a toy company and basically left my job in Canada to come to Vietnam primarily because it wasn't about like, you know, hating my job or anything like that. It was actually more of a personal matter. Yeah.
1: And what year was that?
0: That was in 2017. Uh, well, 2017 is when I had decided to leave and then 2018 is when I, I actually left.
1: Yeah. So yeah, can you, can you tell me about like the moment of that decision?
0: So it was actually the day before my sister's wedding. She was getting married and it was supposed to be a very, very happy occasion. My whole family was down in New York at the time. Uh, my dad got a call on the phone and my mom like just had like the worst look on her face. And my dad too. And my dad's like, okay, I need to tell you guys something. And I'm like, okay, what happened, right? He's like, okay, I talked to the doctor. The doctor called me. We've been going through some tests. And I find out, uh, I found out that I have late stage lung cancer, almost stage four cancer. Like we found that out and then my sister's like, I have to go to my dress fitting, <laughs> you know, because like, like, I don't know, there's no, never a good time to, to know this. Right. But we had to go to the dress fitting and then we had the wedding and, you know, my, my dad walked my sister down the aisle and I saw that and I was like, man, like our whole life just changed right now. And up until that point, you know, I think you could probably tell I was all about work and my career, right? I was like, I want to do the best. I want to be like VP, whatever it is. And then that moment I was like, oh gosh, like nothing else matters. And when that was happening, I was like, man, I want a chance to have my dad walk me down the aisle too, right? And I don't know what I'm going to do next. So it was a really big turning point. And the minute I got back to Toronto after my, my sister's wedding, I was like, I can't focus on work. <laughs> There's nothing I could do, and I, I could see it. Like my performance was not great. I was. I told my company too. I was like, "Man, this is what's happened." And I was like, "Okay, I just gotta leave, right?" And the company was like, "Yeah, do what you gotta do." And they agreed. Like, "Yo, like, we understand," but at the same time, like, you know, we got a business to run. And I was like, "I get, I get it," you know. So basically, after that, it was very quick. My parents and I we sat down, we discussed, and it was decided that I would move to Vietnam, <laughs> and that's how I, I. What was over. what
1: was the conversation like? Why was the decision to move?
0: Right after my sister's wedding, um shortly after that she got pregnant. And so we're like, okay, she got pregnant. She's building her life, right? She's starting her life. And my parents, my mom still had her business, so she still had to run that. So my dad was also going to stay in Vancouver too because we were also going to try to find some sort of treatments in Canada, any treatments possible. And the decision was for me to go to Vietnam prior to his um him finding any treatment. Primarily because, um, you know, my parents, when as they started to grow kind of their money and, and be able to make money, they started to invest in some things here, like a house, you know, land, some retirement homes, and things like that. But because we hadn't done all the paperwork, um, if my dad suddenly passed away, it would all be gone. And paperwork here, work here takes a really long time. It takes a really, really long time legally. And so the decision was, like, OK, I would at least come back to Vietnam for one year. Right. Try to get all of our affairs in order and the likely scenario that my dad would pass away in a few months try to get it all done as quickly as possible so um that was kind of the reason why the decision why i had come over here and i had made that decision too primarily because i didn't want my sister to uproot her life and she was pregnant you know and my mom had to be back in vancouver to tear my dad and i couldn't do anything from here in,
1: in, so it's like, like basically it all fell on you
0: it, it did but Like for me, it wasn't like a big decision. For me, it was like, you know. It was the only decision. Yeah, I have to do this, right? I mean, my parents sacrificed their entire lives. So why not do this for my family?
1: What was it like to move? Like, how quickly did you uproot your life in Canada to go here?
0: Yeah, I did it in a matter of two and a half months. So uh, I ended my job in October 2018, actually.
1: A year after finding. Yeah, a year up.
0: after. Um, so what happened during that year's time is that we were trying to coordinate, like, what do we do as a family? My mom still had to go through tax season, right? Because she couldn't leave the business. So she was still doing that. And during that one year time, we were also trying so to dad find. dad only
1: had four months to live from that.
0: At that time, at that time. So we had to quickly in that time also find treatment plan for him and they had given us a couple different scenarios and unfortunately fortunately but unfortunately one of my friends his dad had just died from uh, esophagus cancer and he had just gone through that process so he knew the entire system and all the options so he was helping us try to find a treatment plan for my dad as quickly as possible because his dad died within two months and so he was helping us do that and we had to explore different options and we were so lucky to find this like a really random trial they had just decided to bring to the Canada. So we're like, okay, great. He's a fit for this trial. And so he started doing the treatment and we started seeing signs that it was working. So that was what the one year was, was him trying out this treatment. And he tried it out, then he had to uh, move to something else afterwards. But it was that entire time that that's why we had to spend a year doing that. We were just trying to give him extra months you know yeah and then find a treatment at the time so yeah so it was in between that time while we were doing the treatment for him that we were figuring out okay what should i do and then uh, i made the move over so yeah in october of 2018 i finally moved like that was the end date but uh, we were planning before that and then two and a half months later uh, i moved over here at the end of december in vietnam
1: what was like your emotional state like during that move
0: it it was horrible. I think, you know, my emotional state was horrible, but the worst part was seeing my mom and my dad. Like, first off, like, you know, when you see your dad, right? Like most people, they think their dad's like super strong and he can take care of anything. And I was seeing my dad. He was so skinny. And on top of that, at one point, he had to be rushed to the emergency room because his lungs had filled up with liquid. So he was basically choking internally. So they had to put a tube into his lungs and had put a bag on the outside to squeeze out the water that would always fill up every single day. And to see your dad in that state, that is probably the most uh, emotionally impacting. And then for my mom, just to see my mom, again, a strong woman, start her home business, everything, to see her just break down and cry. And I never see my mom cry. My dad and my mom never see them cry. And, yeah, it was just really, really tough to see that. So, yeah, I mean, my emotional state was rough, but for me it was more about, like, my parents, you know? Yeah, and this is something you just have to do. Yeah. You have to get the family affairs in order. Yeah, yeah.
1: So how do you been to Vietnam before?
0: I had, I had multiple times. When I was 13, I spent the summer here and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went again when I was uh, 18. I um, also didn't love it. I was three weeks when I was 18.
1: Why didn't you like it?
0: I think it was so shocking for me because I had everything in Canada, right? Even some of the nice areas weren't as bad as some of the poorest areas here. So th- when I saw a lot of that, I think it brought a lot of emotion in me. You know, I think one of the biggest memories I had when I first visited was a lot of children when you're in a car, you know, you're traveling, you stop the car at a traffic light, then children would run up to your car and they would tap, like, knock on the window, and they would be begging for money, and there would be five or six, and you can see they're they're very fragile kids, they're young, they're like four or five, and I can imagine doing that, and I think that was the thing that stuck out to me most, and I was like, I can't live here, like it would just be so depressing for me. But then afterwards, when I moved here, um, you know. In uh, 20, late 2018, I was like, okay, you know, this is going to be my home for the next year at least. So I've got to learn to try to love some things about this country. And I realized I was ignorant to a lot of things. <laughs> I, the the me before that didn't like Vietnam was because I just didn't want to open myself up to
1: it. How did you begin opening yourself up to it?
0: Well, I guess at the time it was kind of easy because before I had my dad kind of take me around. But uh, this time it was kind of easy because I moved back here by myself and I had no friends. Um, Because I left all my friends back in Canada. So uh, it was easy because I started going around to cafes. I was like, okay, you know what, let me put myself out there. I'm going to go to cafes. I'm just going to read and try to explore the city a little bit because there's a lot of cafes in Vietnam. It's beautiful for that, right? Um, And then I'm going to start, you know, going out to play volleyball or sports or trying to meet new people wherever I can. And that's when I started to open myself up to it a little bit more and realize there are all these really cute hidden parts of Vietnam that I didn't realize. There's so much convenience, and the people are really nice. Yes, I saw some poverty when I was much younger, right? But the country has also developed a lot.
1: When you get into like the early part of 2020, where are you with everything in Vietnam?
0: I had started to explore um, doing equal. You know, I tried my hand at working at a company here in Vietnam. It did not go so well. I think the biggest thing was. There's a lot of things that you would experience, I would say, here in a Vietnamese company. Um, And maybe it's this specific company, right? But I I worked for this fitness company um, here in Vietnam, the largest one here. Basically, I just saw things every single day that I would never imagine, you know, um, you know, managers, yelling at staff saying, hey, you're stupid or do you not understand? Like, why can't you speak English? And I was like, what the heck is going on here? What kind of world did I walk into? You know, I would hear about, you know, um, I would get customer complaints because I was, you know, doing marketing at the time. I get customer complaints and alerts on my phone every single day. So I was like, what is going on with this company? What's going on? Why are people leaving so much? Why are people getting fired so much? You know, after doing my assessment of the company and sharing that. I realized my sharing of that was not welcome. They were hiring someone not to bring ideas or to, you know, tell them what they need to do better. They were hiring someone to drink the Kool Aid and follow exactly what they were doing. And me, I was like, no, you're not going to yell at employees. I'm not going to do that. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to sleep with employees and be like, okay, everything's hunky dory and fine. You know, you can't do stuff like that. And I, I don't think that's all of Vietnamese companies. I think it was maybe this specific company in this specific culture, but it just. It turned me off enough that I was like, you know what? The next thing I'm going to do is probably for myself.
1: Was that a hard thing to convince yourself to do?
0: Um, You know what? It was more of like, I think this is the only path right now because I can't see myself working for another company right now. And I'm also not kind of like a person who like sits and does nothing, you know? And then also at the time, to be honest with you, like I had all my relationships break down back home, like everything COVID happened and I was isolated. And then I was going to go back to a fiance that I had in Canada. <laughs> you know, someone I did for eight years, a fiance back in Canada and all my friends and my family, I was supposed to. And then all at the same time, I left that company. My engagement broke. <laughs>
1: well, how did that happen?
0: Oh, that happened over uh, Instagram, live Instagram video feeds of um, him being unfaithful. Friend of mine kind of saw him in the bar. Um, making out with another girl and was like, Hey, are you still engaged? Are you guys still engaged? And I remember that moment because I was actually at work and I had to go into a room and I was like, yes, I'm still engaged. And why, what's going on? And <laughs> he was like, okay, well, um, I, I'm, he's in front of me. I'm sure it's him because I know his face and we're like, we were friends. We, we knew all, we all knew each other. It's like, yeah, he's making out with a girl in front of me. I was like, okay, I need pictures and videos sending me pictures and then videos multiple of them making out basically after that my engagement blew up and I was like okay my my best friend and you know my partner is gone you know I'm isolated in another country during COVID (laughs) I just left this company this company where I had a horrible experience working I just left this company too so it was horrible right because typically what people say is like you're supposed to have four things in life right at least three of them should be stable right your career or work your family your friends and your partner. And I had basically none of them, right? Cause I didn't have access to my family. It's not like my family wasn't bad, was bad or anything, but I didn't have access to my family. So I had none of them going for me. At the time, equal for me was like like a beam of light saving me. And I put all my energy and my effort into that. So that just kind of played into my mind the moment like I saw the grass straw. I was like, oh, this is interesting, right? So um, I started doing research on my own. I had talked to a friend about it. He started helping me research more about like the straw. I was just fascinated. It wasn't like I wanted to do a business, but I was just fascinated. And if you're a marketer, you always wonder why. Why, won't pe- why is this not everywhere? Or why are people not don't know about it? Or why would people? not paying for it
1: and what did you find out why didn't people know about it
0: people didn't know about it because it was native to vietnam so like if you imagine the the grass in canada and the u.s right it's like flat and short for the most part for us kind of seeing like long and tubular grass that grows here in vietnam and that's common but no one no one knows right and people were using it here not really for commercial purposes but they're like oh we're in the in the fields we're farming right now and like we need something to drink our coconuts with like it's hot right so they just chop it off and boom they put it into the straw and then someone thought of hey you know what why don't we just dry them they'll last a little bit longer and people still use them as straws and it's better for the environment but it's not like people did it as a business it was just something that made sense
1: so how much research do you do a
0: lot So when I research, and like, you know, a lot of my friends will say this, like when I research, I research something like to the depths, right? So I will read everything online. then if I don't have anything online, then I'll talk to people about it. And so when I started to research the grass straw, it was researching everything I could online. Then afterwards, going to sites that I didn't understand. They're all in Vietnamese and getting them obviously Google translated. And then after that, talk to my friends and talking to some of the um, like shop owners or some of the service staff being like, hey, where'd you get this from? And like finally somewhere down the line, I would find like the company that did it, Right. Then I would talk to the company and the uh, the people who started it and said are distributing, you know, the products. And they would tell me, oh, yeah, it came from this idea and the, from this history. Or like I had it just in my backyard and I thought it would be really great. So I would just learn about all the different stories about how it came to life, the grass straw.
1: So when did you realize that you wanted to actually create these straws from grass
0: well the first realization came when um, again I realized I had nothing else going for me I was like I was like I don't have time to spend on my family right now because I I like you know it's just online calls and then I don't have a fiance or my best friend anymore I lost half my friends back in home anyways to the old relationship and then I was like I don't have a job right now so um, it kind of was like okay you know what I want to see if I can leverage my background to go ahead and bring this to life and so I went, I defaulted to what I knew, which was CPG, you know, and putting into packaging and trying to validate the idea. And so that's when the idea came about to try to launch this onto Kickstarter. So I had planned for a couple months um, prior to that uh, in late 2019. And then we, um, we officially launched it in April, 2020 uh, onto Kickstarter. And the idea was just to do the design of the packaging, put it into boxes to, you know, do some photos and then launch onto to Kickstarter to see if anyone would pay for it. You know, at first we kind of advertised to all our friends and everyone, it was during lockdown. So everyone had time. So I'm like, yeah, for sure.
1: So when, when you're launching this campaign, what does success look like to you?
0: Cause I had done the research. I said, okay, you know what? I got to hit at least $9,000 in one month. Yeah. I was like, this would be a viable business that would cover my expenses and it's, it would show that there's some some viability, you know? So I said, okay, $9,000. This is after again, I had done the research.
1: So you put it on and you, what do you have like a video or something?
0: Yeah. Well, we, we did a video. Um, The funny thing is I had actually gotten someone online uh, in California to go ahead and do this. We, we sent him products, uh, and he filmed it, but yeah, basically I had, um, I had done the research around this and I was like, okay, you know what, let's go ahead and launch it online and we'll do some like email marketing as well. And yeah, we launched it. And basically within the first three days, um, we had sold $9,000.
1: What did that feel like?
0: It was great. right? At first I was like, Oh, like, this is amazing. Right. Cause I, I was going to, totally overshoot what I had thought. But then afterwards, um, if you remember in April 2020, what happened was also global lockdown. <laughs> so the news came out on the news everywhere. It was like global lockdown, global lockdown, global lockdown, global lockdown. And then we saw instantly our campaign fall off a cliff. So it wasn't like it was $3,000 a day after that. After that, we basically did another $6,000 in sales total. But the first three days we did 9,000. So we ended up with 15,000. Afterwards, we're like, okay, it's going to be only a couple months, but uh, it didn't end up being that way. And I learned a very hard lesson in managing money. I think when I said, hey, it's always going to get better. It's always going to get better. And we keep having our customers think that too, right? That means they're like, oh yeah, we're going to place an order. We're going to place an order, place an order. It never happened. And so what ended up happening was, because I was self-funding the business the entire time myself, right? Right. I ended up running out of money. I was like at a crux, and basically, I was um, talking to one of my friends. He had messaged me on WhatsApp and was like, "Hey, Maria, I'm seeing what you're doing with this Kickstarter campaign and the straws. It's super cool." Uh, You know, I called him. I was like, "Hey, man, like I I know you started a startup because he had started a startup in 2010 before startups were even like a thing. right, became one of the biggest edutech companies in the world. He's super successful and. I was like, what do I do, right? I'm, I'm running out of money. I literally have no more money to spend on this thing. I don't know when COVID is going to be over, but I know this is a good idea. And then he was like, have you ever thought about raising money? And I was like, what the hell do you mean? <laughs> like, what is raising money? Because I had never, I was never in the startup world. I was never in the investment world. It didn't even cross my mind. He was like, yeah, you should think about raising money because I'm sure there are people that would put money into this idea. Like, I'm willing to. Like there will be other people that are willing to too. So he really, like through that one phone call, he started that idea of raising money. After that, um, you know, he had introduced me to um, a company called Techstars, which is a global, you know, tech accelerator. And they had interviewed me and it was like my first time talking about the business to them. And they're like, you know, why do you want to do this and all this sort of stuff? And we had the conversation. Then after that, they were like, hey, we want to invest in you as well.
1: What did that feel like? to say they wanted to invest.
0: Well, first off, like that feeling of like, hey, you want to invest in me? Like the first thing I said was like, why? Right. It was like automatically I was like, why would you want to invest in this? Like, I'm not even sure if I can make money out. This as an idea. And I'm telling you, I am, I have no more money left. Why are you investing in this idea? And what they told me was we're investing in the idea because it's really cool and sustainability. But really what we're investing in is you. And I was like, you know, I have nothing to offer in terms of startup experience. Literally, I've never started a business by myself. I have nothing to offer. And they said there was something about me. And I, I still try to figure out to this day what it is, right? But they said there was something about me that made me want to invest. So Techstars put in 120,000. My friend, he also invested some money as well. Um, and that's when after that, I started to get angel investors as well on board. In total, I closed my round in April of 2022 and I ended up raising 1.3 million USD.
1: How are you thinking about this money and how you're going to manage it? How you're going to spend it and what advice you're looking for in terms of how to to spend that?
0: You know, I had always done the business with an aim for profitability. It was never not part of the plan. It's just that that plan got unfortunately elongated, especially because of COVID and honestly the current climate right now with inflation and everything. Like it's gotten elongated, but I had always had a path to profitability. And the funny thing is, when I remember raising. Um, that was actually, um, that position was a huge detriment to me because everyone said, you know what, why are you focusing on profitability? Right. I was like, oh, I want to grow two, three X per year. They're like, that's too conservative. It's not enough to get me back my money. No, like it, that would be a massive reason why a lot of companies and people did not invest in me.
1: Can you tell me about your, your Shark Tank experience?
0: I mean, Shark Tank was a very interesting experience primarily because like, you know, uh, I was going on to Shark Tank Vietnam and most of the people who pitch on there, they speak Vietnamese. I was speaking everything in English. because My Vietnamese wasn't great at the time. But, you know, we went through the auditions. I didn't realize it was really more of a show rather than an investment. It was not about the business. And it was very... Made very clear multiple times, you know.
1: Like what did they say?
0: Well, I mean, there was like the pre-production. You know, usually you ha- you have like a rehearsal or something. Yeah,
1: they like give you like a script almost. Yeah, they, <laughs> they
0: like you know usually they just like oh yeah these are tips, but actually they're not tips. They are they use are mandatory things that you need to do. We would walk through set and we were with the director, and the director was like, you know, this needs to be more interesting. You need to have some actors here. I would do this here, you know, just to make it more exciting, you know, as a show, it was even all down to the way I even dressed, right? Like they wanted a persona of someone who was like, you know, a young Vietnamese person, like, you know, coming back full of energy. And that's who I'm catering to my audience with sustainability. And um, it became quite readily apparent the whole Lack of professionalism of the show and the fact that it wasn't really geared towards, you know, an investment a real investment. When first off, they were just trying to tell us how to tell our story. You know, when you're supposed to pitch, I understand it's supposed to be exciting, but it should also be very authentic to how you are. But when it becomes an entirely a show where we have to bring in actors, otherwise it's not interesting enough, that becomes strange to me. Then we got onto set and then we were filming. And as I was on set, I realized that they had not done a lot of things that we had asked them to prepare. So they had a translator on set who actually didn't translate anything I said. And then I was supposed to have an in-ear and so were the judges. They were supposed to have an in-ear for translation. And instead they said, hey, you know what? We can't do it in-ear. So it's going to be over the speaker. And it was like echoing. So no one could hear anything. I didn't hear what the judges were saying. It was horrible. And then on top of that, they had put another company's product on stage and we're like this is not our product and they're like don't worry we'll refilm it again so i was like what is going on here but um while i was on stage too just a couple of things like that were really weird shouldn't have happened like one of the judges he broke one of our products right but like he was doing it pretty hard it didn't show it like that but he was like doing it really hard and he broke one of our products he's like oh it's too flimsy i was like come on dude and then like another judge another judge asked me i this didn't make it onto the airing but another judge asked me he's like oh so are you married like you know do you have a husband are you planning to find a husband here in Vietnam? And I was like, that's not relevant, right? I mean, like, appropriate or not? I don't care. Maybe he wanted to know a little bit more about me, but that's not relevant at all to the, yeah. my business. Why are you asking?
1: I mean, every country is sexism, but does does Vietnam feel a lot more like potent than Canada? I
0: would actually say no. Um, that's the odd thing. I find that Vietnam is probably on par with. Any other country, it's it's quite odd. You do see a lot of females in senior positions here. I would say the kind of the whole idea around like you know bringing um, inappropriate questions for females into the business space—that I think that happens globally. I don't think it's just a Vietnam-specific problem. But I will say I think Vietnam is a lot more progressive than I've seen in any other country that I've been in so far, and that's saying a lot, you know. And I think it's because there is a certain special value that the society in vietnam has for women here then that again that is completely opposite to my experience on shark tank like vietnam like that was not indicative of it on there
1: you eventually got all this money for um from investors like
0: yeah i think some of the comments that they had made oddly enough when they decided not to invest or some of them except for one shark decided to invest so it wasn't really about our business per se and that's why the one shark did invest. He was like, you know, I, I I do see some of the benefit of like what you're doing. You're building a brand. And if the brand can get big enough and get be trusted enough, then yeah, you're, you're onto something.
1: How much did that shark invest?
0: He didn't actually invest this money. So oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So he had offered 200,000 in exchange for like 45% of our company, which is ridiculous. Right. It was not the deal I came in. I said, you know, for like 10%. <laughs> but uh, I had gotten some really great advice in the seasons prior from some previous contestants, which was whatever deal you are offered you take it because there's a massive difference in the PR that you receive if you take a deal and you don't get a deal on the show So there's a lot of behind the scenes
1: but you don't have to necessarily accept that deal
0: no so what happens right after is yes you can take the deal but it's just like an on-screen deal what happened right after the show is first I got backstage the assistant of the shark who gave me the offer gave me her business card and said hey keep in contact so we had filmed in April of that year And we had contacted them right after that and said, okay, you know, let's, let's talk about this deal. And they basically didn't talk to us until the show actually aired. So I was like, six months later, you guys are coming back to us. And they're like, yeah, you know, it was because uh, things were hard and we're having a hard time right now. We might not be able to invest. But let's keep the conversation going. You only put money into one. Um, and that's typically the rate in uh, in these shows. 10% of all companies, actually, the deals go through. I needed to try to figure out how I made like the sales cycle automatic. Before, we were just selling through Kickstarter. And I was like, okay, since we don't have any customers anymore with the hotels and the restaurants and stuff... Um, I'm just going to launch this onto Amazon and some e-commerce channels because e-commerce was booming at the time. We also experimented a lot, right? And so this is where I had the production facility, then I closed it down. Then we experimented trying to launch new products and which, seeing which ones were trying to experiment with price points too. So a lot of that money, and I, know, I don't think a lot of people want to hear this, but a lot of that money has to go into like testing different ideas. Where we've ended up now is that we have to have a good mix of both. So In this business, it's very easy just to manufacture as a no-name, sell for the lowest price and like, you know, eat away at your margins and then like not really innovate, but go through volume, right? Because it's a commodity segment. And we realized after a couple of years that, it was our brand as equal. It was me doing all the interviews, going out, building the brand, educating people about the product, educating people about sustainability. That is why people were choosing us, even though we were more expensive, you know, more expensive than going direct to the manufacturer. So we maintain the current brand the way it is right now, the direct-to-consumer retail brand. We maintain that. And then on top of that, we sign contracts and long-term contracts with a lot of our customers. And then on top of that, we try to find different ways to build barriers of entries. People say barriers of entry should be innovation for the most part. And for us, we argue it's a commodity. So rather than innovation itself, we focus on innovation, um, giving people choice. So having as many sustainable materials to choose from as possible. And then on top of that, Um, focusing on things that they really care about, customization, branding, educating their consumers, which is what we focus on. So with all of that, I think that's helping us a lot in terms of our profitability because we're able to maintain our higher price, even in an environment like this, sell our products, sell it both to um, different channels, one channel that people never even looked at, which is D2C, and then sell it to the regular channel of B2B, and then also try to keep our costs down as much as possible after doing all the testing
1: (laughs) yeah so what are you most excited for in the future
0: honestly is to see how far we could take this company you know i think and that's probably like a pretty fluffy answer but it really is true because i think right now it's a tough situation like you've had startups and i was one of them we started during covid you had to survive covid now you have to survive war and now you have to survive inflation and recession and For me just now, just trying to see how far we can take this company, if I can, you know, try to make my investors happy, that is good enough for me. But if we, if I try to go after the dream that everyone says like you have to have, which is like IPO or be a billion dollar company, I just think I'm going to lose touch with like what it is I started the company, what reason I started the company for and all the things that I accomplished along the way. So just trying to see how far I can take it.
1: You know, you've take, you've raised over a million dollars. You've been on Shark Tank. You've like you've been all, you know, you have like what th- 13 employees now. How many employees do you have now?
0: I have now 17.
1: 17 employees. You're in like over 15 countries, mm-hmm. like selling all around the world. When you started this, when you were just in the research stage, um, and to like other people that are maybe, like thinking about starting companies and are in the research stage like what advice do you think you would give to those people from the position you are in now
0: I guess the biggest piece of advice I would give to someone is whatever you decide to do make sure you do it with like no regrets because you know as we know and as we learned from the past couple of years like you know time is limited time is your biggest currency that you have to offer as a as a human being, is time, and you will always regret all the things you didn't do. You'll never get regret the things that you did, right? Because it, it led to something else. But you'll always regret the things that you didn't do. So, if you're gonna do something, right, make sure you do it with no regrets whatsoever. And if you treat everything you do with that, then you'll never be disappointed. You'll never feel like you you failed. Um, it's just something I've learned because I was like, okay you know what? At least I tried and I learned. You know. And I learned so much. Like I've I've wasted money on things that I probably shouldn't have wasted money on. You know, I lost the money on things I shouldn't have lost on, but all those things led to where I am today, you know? And so, yeah, if you start something, make sure you do it and do it full out without any regrets.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from Jessica Morales, Miley Lipton, Siyu Pan, Kenny Ray, Josie Yo, Matt Fernandez, and Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez with support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee, Sarah Tearsma. And To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.